this is, I think, in my unbiased opinion, the most exciting field at the moment. P people said that um, in prior decades, there was the physics decade and then the chemistry decade, and this is the biology decade. Hey, Maureen, welcome to American Optimist. Thank you for having me. Maureen, you're the CEO and founder of Hexagon, and you were previously at Stanford. What, what, what was your role there? I was a director at the Stanford Genome Technology Center. I guess Sir Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, right, in 1928 when he, he was observing fungi, which is obviously a very important drug. And we've had yep. statins. We've had a lot of other things. So yep. this is a, it's an important area. And I understand there's all these ways new technologies allowing us to discover a lot of natural products we, we couldn't discover before. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, what you're doing at Hexagon. Yeah. So Hexagon's a drug discovery company focused on oncology and infectious disease. And we discover drugs, just like you said, from natural sources, things called natural products. So these are drugs like penicillin, which was discovered um, in the 1920s sort of by accident as a wonderful antibacterial drug. So it evolved in a fungus over millions of years. It's kind of a chemical warfare competition. Where Fungi are always trying to, trying to mess with exactly. each other. Yeah. Microbes and plants are always trying to compete with each other. Um, signal each other, compete for resources. So penicillin evolved to kill bacteria. It evolved over millions of years to be a really great, potent uh, antibiotic uh, for this fungus to kill off its neighbors in the soil, most likely. Mm. So Alexander Fleming discovered it by accident. A fungus flew in through his window on a Petri dish of bacteria, started killing the bacteria. He figured out the active ingredient, uh, penicillin, which was the first antibiotic. Uh, from there, many other antibiotics that were found, about three quarters of all antibiotics over history were found from natural sources, so microbes and plants. Because of this competitive environment... There's evolved ways of killing each other. Yeah, there's all these cool exactly. natural weapons, basically. Yeah, there's this constant arms race going where they're having to outcompete, uh, kill each other This off. is the same thing CRISPR came from, where bacteria had to learn how to like snip pieces yes. of viruses and remember what they were. So exactly. There's all this natural warfare that's teaching us things. Yeah, there's good parallels there. Yeah, CRISPR was bacteria trying to kill viruses. Yeah. All of these other great drugs are bacteria killing each other, or killing fungi or plants or animals. And I understand fungi are like the most similar to animals in the... In, in, or to, to us, I guess, in the, in, in yes. the kingdom of like... Yeah, the, compared things. to bacteria. There's compared the tree of life, there's bacteria, viruses way over here. Uh, fungi and humans are actually pretty closely related, surprisingly. And in the tree of life, like fungi are not animals, but they're but they're near, right nearby them, sort of. Yeah, they're their own kingdom. And so there's like thousands of types of things inside of fungi, and a lot of those echo the things and types of our cells. And so because they learn to fight each other in different ways, they can probably target most things in our cells as well. Exactly. So humans have about 20,000 genes we know now from the Human Genome Project. Fungi have about 6,000 that are the same in humans, or very similar. And, and, the, and I understand there's about 5 million species of fungi in the yep. wild. Yep, yep. And how, and how many of these have we like sequenced and studied now or kind of experimented with in the lab? Have, yeah. we, have we watched most of them at this point or we've seen a few of them or what is it? About 0.1%. You, you got your numbers, numbers good. Um, so scientists estimate there's about 5 million species of fungi on the planet mm -hmm. and only 5,000 have been sequenced. Only 5,000. So, so are you out there with buckets of stuff sequencing fungi yet, <laughs> or do you already have libraries to use right now? We are starting to sequence ourselves. You could so, send Kevin and Andy out to the jungle. for, for you know. <laughs> They've asked me. <laughs> 
These are some mutual Is that a friends. thing? People should go to the jungle and like look for new fungi and you yeah. might find something? So historically, this is how a lot of these drugs were found. Things like Taxol, a cancer drug, um, rapamycin, a very famous drug for a number of My diseases. My friend Peter Atia is really into that one right yep. now. He's so that one was found in Rapa Nui, uh, Easter Island. Someone who went out digging in the dirt and found this amazing drug. Um, how, so the- how, how, how did that just... Like, oh, this is a drug. They found in the dirt and went and sequenced it or went and what? Did, in the old know? days, they didn't sequence. So the exciting new thing is DNA sequencing. The old school way of finding these drugs was people call it grind and find. So scoop up dirt, grind it up, uh, purify what's there, see if it kills cancer cells, see if it kills bacteria. Test it on stuff. Wow. To just test it directly. And, and did we, did that, did, have we always been finding things through the grind and find method and all of a sudden, I understand we found a lot less over some period of time. So we'd already kind of found what was easy to find through that. Yeah, so a lot of the low-hanging fruit we think has been found through this old-school method. Mm-hmm. Um, people at big pharma companies in past decades would be paid little bonuses to bring back dirt from their vacations That's to funny. do this kind of grind-and-find search. Yeah. It was really laborious, really slow. The low-hanging fruit was probably found already. Um, so what's changed really is DNA sequencing. So we can see many more, this 99.9% of microbes that no one has looked at. And you figured out in your postdoc at Stanford or when you when you were at this center at Stanford, you figured out that you could look at the DNA and figure out with a good chance what the fungi was trying to target because it was reflected in the DNA. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about that. So this is really what's enabled by DNA sequencing. We can see genes encoding uh, small molecule drugs, things like penicillin, statins, and new new chemicals can also see that these microbes have to protect themselves from these drugs because they're toxic. Mm-hmm. So the statins are my favorite example. That's a blockbuster $100 billion cholesterol drug, Lipitor, mm-hmm. originally found in a fungus uh, because cholesterol is essential. It's mm-hmm. just so happens in humans, it's good to lower cholesterol, but it's a toxin for fungi. Um, so this fungus that evolved the statin originally had to protect itself by mutating its own cholesterol. And we can see that in the DNA sequence. So we call it a toxin-antitoxin pair. And, and so you look at the DNA, and, and how do you figure out like what part of the DNA is the toxin and what part is the antitoxin? It seems like a hard problem. That part, the first part is very straightforward. We can see genes that encode different types of chemicals, um, and that part's pretty easy. Got it. So you know this gene's this chemical, and so over time you kind of figure out, oh yeah, these would be the chemicals that I expect to show up in this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, these types of chemicals. The harder part is the antitoxin, these genes we think, or these um, genes encoding these chemicals, those chemicals are going to target cholesterol or they're going to target some cancer-related gene or pathway. That is Hexagon's um, uh, insight and proprietary effort we've put in in finding how these uh, these microbes have mutated themselves in a way that gives away what the drug is going to do or what it's going to target. And so Hexagon now is is taking you know, different fungi sequences. It's looking for targets, like you said, anti-inflammatory and cancer and other, and other sorts of things. Anti-infectives like, and cancer. And, and you're searching and then you're, and then you're trying to copy and paste the DNA and print it out. You, you, you use, what do you use to put the DNA into? Like, how do you, how do you get it to express? Cause the fungi won't just come yeah. into a lab and like make the thing for you. Right. Right. So most of these fungi won't grow well in laboratories. That's part of why only the 0.1% has really been worked on. The 99.9% don't really grow well in the lab. So what we do exactly as you said, is we, essentially transplant the DNA into baker's yeast, just beer and bread yeast. And just the part of the DNA that makes the thing you want. Exactly. It's usually about 10 genes and codes one drug. And you put it into the yeast and you like, do you brew the yeast? What do you do? Yep. Yep. We brew the yeast. When you come by, you'll smell yeast. So it looks like you're making beer. <laughs> yeah, it does. 
Um, so we brew them and get them to ferment or produce these chemicals, and then we test them. And then you test the chemicals to see what they do. And, and I understand, understand you were able to find within some fungi that they actually know how to target certain targets that are already famous drugs that exist. So you actually, you actually found the fungi and the yeast printed out a drug that already exists in some early cases. Was that, was that right? Yes, exactly. So um, we, for example, rediscovered the statins and some of these existing drugs. We also see that uh, microbes have evolved drugs for important essential pathways that are um, essential in cancer, for example. So microbes have already evolved uh, over millions of years solutions to pretty important problems. And are you going to take these and take some of these drugs into into phase one and whatnot? Is it, are you going to do it yourself or how are you going to do it? Yeah. So our plan is to initially keep our, our assets in-house and take them forward ourselves. We are interested in partnering with big pharma companies um, as part of a broader strategy. So right now we're focused on oncology and infectious disease. I mentioned uh, longer term will expand into other disease areas uh, such as immunology, metabolic disease, cardiovascular those are areas that are a little harder for a small company. We're 50 people. Um, and those are disease areas that bigger pharma companies are uh, more so they, suited. They, they, they can help you with they have more resources. They can push some ahead. Yep. You mentioned you have 50 people. One of one of my favorite things about your company, which is an awesome company in a lot of ways, is that you've you've hired some of our superstars who used to be a Palantir and, our, and my yep. friends, my old friends who are yep. there. And, and they're really top computer scientists. You have a lot of top scientists. Then you have these top computer scientists as well. What are, what are these computer scientists doing at your company? Why do you need computer scientists? Yeah, great question. There's massive amounts of data here. So we are sequencing the earth. These 5 million species of fungi leads to orders of magnitude, uh, more genes and bases, base pairs. So you're sequencing a lot of stuff, getting all the data. Yep. Yeah, massive amounts of data. And then on top of that, doing some uh, modeling, simple machine learning to learn which of these drugs are going to be useful in the clinic. How's, how's, and so there's machine learning based on just basically once you've seen enough things, you start to get a sense where it can predict here's the ones you spend more time on first and, and look at because of some characteristics. Yeah, exactly. As we're getting more genomes and more data, um, it's kind of like the quant effect on Wall Street, effect on Wall Street. We can start to really see um, which genomes are going to be useful and which ones are not and focus the search. And, and then sometimes the machine learning might be looking for the fact that it actually just that actually is like a, 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 to, a toxin or an antitoxin or it's, or it's looking for the fact that this could be a new one that you haven't seen before or what kind of things? Both. Is so when we see related genomes or species, we can see clues that only this one in a family has this toxin antitoxin pair in ways that can give us more confidence. And then the second thing you said is also true. We can see brand new chemicals and targets like disease areas that no one has seen before so when you, when you find some of these things is it likely there could be something that's like a different type of statin that's similar or is it going to be something that's just completely different that's 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 unrelated or what's what's most likely here uh we've seen both so we've seen um we rediscovered the statins themselves as i mentioned we've seen other uh drugs evolving in that same kind of cholesterol pathway mm -hmm. uh, and we also see other totally unrelated chemicals in unrelated pathways that could also have an effect on cardiovascular disease. I feel like, I feel like, and my friend was telling me in the fifties in science labs, they would take stuff and they'd like, just try it out. Like they're learning about radiation and they say like, this radiation should be safe and they drink the water and stuff. You guys aren't just trying the statins or anything like that though. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> not how it works nowadays. <laughs> Nobody in our lab does that. <laughs> but you might, you might, you might eventually test it on like like mice, right? It's like we where are, we go first. Yeah. And then you'd like very slowly test for safety over time. Exactly. So 
What Hexagon's special sauce is, is discovering new chemical matter for difficult disease areas. Once we discover these compounds, we follow the tried and true FDA approval process. We are not innovating on the regulatory process at all. Got it. Got it. Just a certain way of like testing these things and seeing if they're legit or not. And then yep. lots of people will figure that out and you're going to yep. use that. Yeah. Do you like have your own vivarium then for mice and stuff? Or you, you're, is, we, we don't yet. We may someday. There's a really good ecosystem, especially in the Bay Area for these kinds of safety studies. So and you don't even really need to. You can yeah. just kind of pay someone else who's really good at that and you yeah. focus on the part you're, you're innovating in. Yeah. That's an exciting part of biotech right now. There's this ecosystem supporting small companies that can, yeah, really focus on innovate what they're good in and then outsource as much as possible. So if Hexagon is successful, what does that look like to the average American? How does that change their everyday life? We're hoping to bring many drugs to patients over the next 10 years, starting with cancer and infectious disease and eventually many other disease areas. So that would affect people in terms of once they're diagnosed with the disease, with the disease, we have a number of medicines that are actually treating patients. So I hope to actually treat uh, many, many Americans in the years to come. So hopefully there's millions of people that can benefit and cure their cancer or cure their infection from you guys. Exactly. So you have all these really promising drugs and you're just, maybe some of them will go to what's called IND and then phase one. How long is it going to take to get some of these to market to help people? Yeah. I mean, it can take 10 years to get a drug to market. Sometimes in oncology, it can be much faster if you have a targeted patient population or a defined patient population. This is why it's so exciting with the advances in DNA sequencing. You can really run your clinical trials much faster, find patients quickly, treat them quickly, get a readout relatively quickly. Um, but in general, in, in the pharma industry, there are strict regulations. You have to do safety studies in animals and then phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials before the FDA will let you um, sell the drug on the market. So I want to ask as someone who's you very involved in, in ac- academia and there's a lot of smart people there. You work closely with them. You made amazing progress there. And now you have your own company. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, what are, what are the, what are some of the differences and advantages and disadvantages of, of running a company and doing this really, you know, more advanced research in some ways in a company versus doing it in a university? Like why, why couldn't you just have done this all at a university? And, and, and how do you think about the differences and the different roles you play in each? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So I did a PhD at Stanford in bioinformatics and I went into that assuming I would do academic research. Um, and during my time at Stanford, so you weren't planning on like, I'm going to go make a lot of money building no. a company. You were just, you no. wanted to do research. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And during my time at Stanford, I got to know a lot of entrepreneurs um, and investors and people who'd done this kind of thing. And it became a very normal kind of path and a very exciting path because of all of the really smart capital out there investing in hard problems like this, um, hard tech, biotech, other kinds of technology companies. And it started to become clear to me over time that... Um, there was a much bigger opportunity in developing this at a company than it might have been in academia. We were talking with a friend earlier who, who says it's like you have to work really hard to get like five million dollars for your lab in academia. Yes. Whereas, you, how much money have you, you raised so far you, for, your, for, for the company? It's a lot more than that. Yeah, we've raised over fifty million. So it's like so you've raised over ten times more than that, and, yep. and, and and so you're able to just do a lot more faster. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Are are there other differences in in between the two? Yeah. It's a really exciting time in biotech because so many smart young people are excited about solving these big problems um, in this kind of company setting. So So you can get the help of more people more easily. Yeah. And this really critical mass, like 50 amazing smart people all 
like rowing together towards the same or on the same problem towards some solution. Do you think the equity alignment helps with that as well? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Is there a way that academics could have that or wouldn't really make sense in the other context? I had a professor at Stanford say the um, currency in industry is, is money or financial and the currency in academia is credit. And it, it just leads to interesting incentives. There's a lot of competition. People aren't kind of rowing the same You're direction. You're trying to take credit maybe from someone else somehow. But yeah, don't get me wrong. There's awesome collaborations, wonderful people often working very closely together. But there's something different about being on a team of, for us right now, 50 people. We are all so laser focused on this one mm-hmm. goal together. It's just amazing. If there were If there were things you could change about either academia or the business world right now based on the experiences you've had, like what would you like to see work differently based on, based on your own experience or what, what, what are some challenges that are frustrating? Um, oh, that's a good question. Academia or industry. Um, I think, I think in academia, it would be great if more universities, um, gave more, uh, exposure to the biotech world. I think I was so lucky at Stanford getting that exposure just by proximity, being in Silicon Valley, knowing so many people who had, who had done it and being uh, near the Stanford business school, they had some really great classes. Um, they encouraged PhD students to take classes and learn. So some things the academia could actually learn by how things are being done in biotech that are useful. Yeah. That's interesting. And then, and then in the business world, what would you, what would you change that you've, you've had to deal with so far? Um, you've raised, you've raised, I think, a. Is it two big rounds of financing or three yep. now? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Seed and two big rounds of financing. Yeah. Uh, we need more women in the business world. You know, always annoying guys you have to deal with on the investment side. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How do you no, think no, we change that? I, there have been wonderful mentors throughout my career um, and, and colleagues, but getting more women would be great. Do you think, is that something you, so I, let's say Hexagon continues to succeed and it finds a lot of exciting drugs and it cures some form of cancer and helps with other all sorts of other problems and becomes a multi-billion dollar company and then you personally are going to have a lot a lot of financial resources like is that something you'd want to you'd want to work on or would you yourself want to then mentor and maybe potentially help invest in up-and-coming people who are coming out of academia yes absolutely yeah i think finding some of these uh next generation academic uh stars who maybe are interested in this kind of path, but don't quite know how to do it. Um, there's a lot of room for just, again, exposure, uh, a little bit of um, helping them see how it can be done. I know a lot of really talented women founding companies in biotech from the science world right now. There's, there's, there are some for sure that are good investors. There don't seem to be as many of them who then choose the investment path. <laughs> is that is there something that, that we need to do differently to encourage that? Is that something <laughs> that, that culturally not as many women are often interested in or what's <laughs> what's going on there? I actually see a lot of women investors on the biotech side, I think less on the tech side, but um, I think the numbers are great and growing. So, it's, so it's, it is getting better right now. It's, the, like a positive, it's like a positive direction. Yeah, from what I can see. That's really cool. Yeah. And uh, one, 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 one other topic I'm interested in, a lot of people are really worried about this like looming antibiotic resistance where we're not going to be able to kill bacteria and they're like evolving to yes. overcome all of our 
yes. different things. Is that, that's something you guys are working on at all? And, and are you going to be able to make money doing that? Or is there a problem? People say, oh, well, no one's solving it because you know, can't make enough money for an antibiotic. So how do yeah. you think about that one? Yeah. So there's three major classes of anti-infectives. That's kind of the broad term. Antivirals. Anti-infectives. I got to make sure yeah. you use that. Anti-infectives means viruses, bacteria, and fungi. Those are those are three things that infect you. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to cancer is yep. like self gone wrong. Yeah. Um, or immune related diseases. There's three kinds of infectious disease. So viruses, there's a robust business for that right now. Yes. Um, anti, <laughs> antifungals, uh, we are working on. There's a big unmet need there. Um, I, I, I hear when you get, this is kind of creepy, but I hear when you get older, you like the fungi, like, can like get into your like toe and then just stay there and you permanently have like a toe with fungi in it that everyone sees and there's like no way to get rid of it right now which sounds i just heard about this from an older friend which sounds super creepy this is like a th- are you gonna solve this for us <laughs> yeah yeah we hope we hope to solve that we're actually more working on systemic fungal infections much more life-threatening uh there's a bigger unmet need there more dire of course um, that's so fair this is that one of them's ugly one of them kills you so. yes, yes. And is, is that is that a pretty common problem people die from fungal infections Yes, it is a, a big and growing problem right now. How does There's, that happen? How does that happen? Do you have to like go into the jungle or something or it happens every day to people or what? These days it's mostly immune compromised people. God, um, it's your immune system's already weak and then a fungi mm-hmm. gets in and spreads and we need some other way to help kill it off. Yeah. And there's a lot of other um, treatment regimens that can lead to this. Certain types of cancer therapies, for example, can leave you immune compromised yep. and more susceptible to this. The antibacterial problem is different. Sadly, the market there is just broken. Um, companies know this, the government knows how do, how this. Do, how do we fix this? This is, seems like a really important problem. The government so has to step in. in. In what way? So right now there's antibiotics and I guess I understand there's some that we try to reserve and not use too much because they're kind of like a last line of defense, but yep. especially in hospitals, bacteria evolved to withstand a bunch of these. Yep. And, and what, and, and why isn't, why is the market broken? Cause they're not willing to pay enough for the one thing you're only going to need rarely for now, but you're eventually going to need a lot more. Yes. Uh, physicians, payers, people are not willing to pay a lot for antibacterial drugs. Because you have something that works and then there's no pat- yes. patents on them anymore because they've been around forever. Yes. And penicillin works for most patients. The problem is this growing drug resistance uh, in bacteria. They're just swapping these drug resistance genes left and right. It's really scary. And that it'll it'll be a massive wave that'll hit us. We just don't quite know when. And investors don't know when that'll happen At some happen point, there'd be a bacteria that are resistant to all of them and they're going to and they're going to yep. come hit us. This will be like the next COVID-19 maybe yep. or something. Yep. Are bacteria as infectious as viruses? Or how does that work? It- yes, they can be. And we have, our generation has forgotten that because we've had great antibiotics our whole we've life. We've really deal with it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the plague, uh, lots of other, pro- other disease- bacterial diseases were just terrible and terribly infectious. But now they're no problem because of antibacterial well, drugs. Well, you seem like a very mission-driven person. So this is something Hexagon's working on. And then we'll figure out how to get paid for it. We are not, we are not working on it. So we're not able to work on it because there's not a market right now. Exactly. That's frustrating. That's very frustrating. What would it take to work on it? Like how much money and resources would it take to work on it for you? Well, I, someone just sponsor you. Yeah. I mean, something like the government putting out a, um, some kind of major prize, like hundred billion dollar prize uh, to get companies really working on it. Would even like a billion dollars be enough to get someone to work on it? It would be something. Yeah, but that is some amount of some amount of money to yep. to to like get you to be able to invest tens or even a few hundreds of millions of dollars yes. to get there to then be able to get paid for that work yep. if it works. Yep, exactly. That's very interesting. And why do you think they haven't done this yet? They're just they're just busy doing lots of other things. 
I think so. And I think is <laughs> he doing lots of other things and nobody really took it seriously or has taken it seriously. I think COVID is a little bit of a wake up call. This kind of like the front. power grid in Texas when the winter's never been that bad. So we never winterized it. Exactly. And then all of a sudden you have yep. a disaster and so yep. now they're doing it, but maybe hopefully yep. we don't wait for the bacteria superbug to kill lots of people before we do this. Yeah, I hope not. And there are various things happening in Congress and different parts of the government. Um, things like giving companies, uh, orphan designations or certain kinds of waivers that will really help on the financial side, help push these drugs to market and make it worth the while of the companies and the investors. That's cool. Well, one of the reasons we started American Optimist is because a lot of people are very pessimistic right, right. now about the future <laughs> of our country. And I think it's really awesome what you're working on. Uh, and it's lots of optimism in terms of like what you're going to be able to figure out. Um, I mean, are, are you, are you optimistic on, on, on our country overall? And, and, and like, what, what, what are you seeing in your industry and in your life right now? I'm so optimistic. It's a really exciting time, especially in biotech, just sticking with that topic. Um, this DNA sequencing, all these breakthroughs here is really exciting, especially in oncology and cancer. We can sequence, um, tumors very easily, get a much better sense of matching different types of cancers with different treatments. So much is going to happen there in the next five, 10 years. Um, and then on top of that, sequencing the whole planet, like we talked about, uh, in order to find therapies, uh, find new types of tools. Are there lots of other things that evolve we haven't seen yet that we could use? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned CRISPR as one kind of example. So there's drugs, there's CRISPR, there's ideas like engineering viruses to kill, to kill cancer. So there's so much out there. That so there's all sorts of these mechanisms and from this kind of ancient warfare between viruses and bacteria and fungi that we can harness in, in cool ways for ourselves. Yeah. It's a very exciting time in biotech. So speaking of the different types of people going into biotech right now, this is obviously a really exciting space. Like, what would you tell the next generation? What should people be thinking about when they're thinking what to study, what to work on? Like, is, is this a place more people should be going into? Absolutely. And I would say definitely learn how to program, learn how to code. That just opens all kinds of doors, especially in biotech. Um, with all of the massive amounts of data coming out, some facility and programming is really important. Did, did most industry. of the people in your PhD program know how to code? Yep. And so, 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 and so people should learn how to code if they like biology. That's, that's the, yep. Biology is a data science at this point. And, and you think there's going to be a ton of opportunities in this area in the coming years? Absolutely. This is, I think in my unbiased opinion, the most exciting field at the moment. P people said that, um, in prior decades, there was the physics decade and then the chemistry decade, and this is the biology decade. Awesome. Well, thanks Marie.